Open your Bibles to Acts chapter 26. I'm calling these our launch sermons. That's the way the file is in my computer. The 2017 launch. That's what we're doing. Remember you've said, if we ever changed our name, you know, to, to the bridge or whatever instead of Grace Baptist. Who remembers what I would call it? The ramp. Wouldn't that be awesome? Just take off to Jesus. That's a, just, we'll just call the church the ramp. All right. So Acts chapter 26. Before we read that, and in a minute, I'm going to have you all stand, and we're going to read the whole chapter together. And the reason I'm going to have you stand for it is because I know some of you would fall asleep before we were done reading the chapter. So we're going to do that in just a second. But before we do that, I want to review where we've been. First of all, we're going to preach Christ from this platform. Just like Aaron was just singing, we don't want to leave a legacy. We don't want people to remember Grace Baptist. We want them to remember Jesus Christ. Amen. And that's the heartbeat of everything that we're doing here. And in order for us to reach our community, we have to be a welcoming church. And that welcoming church concept, it is what I was talking about earlier, you know, putting Ikea furniture together. Um, uh, what's your name? Chad said that we need to have people come in and do Ikea furniture right before couples counseling. Is that true? Man, I thought I was going to die before I got out of that store. I've never been as tired as when I go. Okay, so we've got to become a welcoming church. Then we must heed the call of God on our lives. And we're going to look at some of that a little bit today. God has a calling for us and he knew what we would do. He knew what our past would be. He knew the mistakes we would make after he called us. He knows all of that. And yet we still have a call of God on our lives. In other words, God's plan, could God do it all by himself without us? Yes, but his, his plan is to use us. And the amazing grace, the amazing fulfillment and enjoyment that comes from seeing somebody else grow in the Lord because of you, God knew that we needed that. So we've got to heed the call of God on our lives. And then we're going to ground our preaching on biblical theology. I'm never going to stand up here and talk about the latest book. You know, I might do an expose of a book, but we're never going... Here's the book that we're going to preach right here. All of our theology comes from this, not from what any man says. That being said, we do learn from how God has worked through other Christians. We do read their books and grow and learn from them. They're not authoritative. The Bible is authoritative, all right? So then we're going to live for Christ because of him and in building others. So we looked at that last week. Because I live, Jesus said, you shall live also. And then the apostle Paul said, and now we live if ye stand fast in the Lord. So our life is in Christ and in building others. In other words, kind of the heartbeat when we started the building program, when we knew that it was going to be inconvenient for a period of time. Remember what our heartbeat was. It's not about you. It's about others. It's about the Lord. It's not about us and what we want. Well, that's the heartbeat of the Christian life. Jesus saved me and he has built me through the word of God, through the local church, through other believers. And that gives me the responsibility to build others because of that. All right. So that's what, where we were last week. So today, why witness? Why should we be a witness for Jesus Christ? And what does it mean to be a witness for Jesus Christ? So let's all stand together. Let's read Acts chapter 26. I didn't mention this. There are Bibles in the chairs in front of you. So if you didn't happen to bring a Bible with you, there is a Bible in the chair in front of you. So if you're able to stand, if you're not, man, be seated and enjoy it. All right. So Acts chapter 26, and just uh, read along silently with me as I read this. Then Agrippa said unto Paul, Thou art permitted to speak for thyself. Then Paul stretched forth his hand and answered for himself. I think myself happy, King Agrippa, because I shall answer for myself this day before thee, touching all the things whereof I am accused of the Jews, especially because I know thee to be an expert and all customs and questions which are among the Jews. Wherefore, I beseech thee to hear me patiently. My manner of life from my youth, which was at the first among mine own nation at Jerusalem, know all the Jews, which knew me from the beginning, if they would testify, that after the most straightest sect of our religion, I lived a Pharisee. Now, some of you are very thankful that he said most straightest because your grammar is correct now. All right? 
So then look at what it says in verse 6. And now I stand and am judged for the hope of the promise made of God unto our fathers, unto which promise our 12 tribes instantly serving God day and night hope to come. For which hope's sake, King Agrippa, I am accused of the Jews. Why should it be thought a thing incredible with you that God should raise the dead? I verily thought with myself that I ought to do many things contrary to the name of Jesus of Nazareth, which thing I also did in Jerusalem. And many of the saints did I shut up in prison, having received authority from the chief priests. And when they were put to death, I gave my voice against them. And I punished them oft in every synagogue and compelled them to blaspheme. And being exceedingly mad against them, I persecuted them even unto strange cities. You might want to take note of where he identifies that he was exceedingly mad against them. Verse 12, whereupon, as I went to Damascus with authority and commission from the chief priests, at midday, O king, I saw in the way a light from heaven above the brightness of the sun, shining round about me and them which journeyed with me. And when we were all fallen to the earth, I heard a voice speaking unto me, saying in the Hebrew tongue, Saul, Saul, why persecutest thou me? It is hard for thee to kick against the pricks. Remember what that's talking about there. The, an oxen that didn't want to be on a cart, it would kick back against the plower, kick back against the cart. So they put sharp sticks in the front of the cart. So when the ox wanted to do that, it would hurt and he would stop doing that. God's telling, Jesus is telling Paul, why are you doing this? And I might not get this to this in my sermon, so let me say this right here. Notice that Jesus didn't say, why are you kicking me? His interest wasn't in himself. Paul was hurting himself by kicking Jesus and his people. Jesus' mercy and grace is just amazing. All right, so now verse 15. And I said, who art thou, Lord? And he said, I am Jesus, whom thou persecutest. But rise and stand upon thy feet, for I have appeared unto thee for this purpose, to make thee a minister and a witness, both of these things which thou hast seen, and of those things in the which I will appear unto thee, delivering thee from the people and from the Gentiles unto whom now I send thee, to open their eyes and to turn them from darkness to light, and from the power of Satan unto God, that they may receive forgiveness of sins and inheritance among them which are sanctified by faith, that is in me. Whereupon, O King Agrippa, I was not disobedient unto the heavenly vision, but showed first unto them of Damascus and at Jerusalem, and throughout all the coasts of Judea and then to the Gentiles, that they should repent and turn to God and do works meet for repentance. For these causes the Jews caught me in the temple and went about to kill me. Having therefore obtained help of God, I continue unto this day witnessing both to small and great, saying none other things than those which the prophets and Moses did say should come, that Christ should suffer, and that he should be first, and that should be, I'm sorry, and that he should be the first that should rise from the dead and should show light unto the people and to the Gentiles. And as he thus spake for himself, Festus said with a loud voice, Paul, Thou art beside thyself, much learning doth make thee mad. But he said, I am not mad, most noble Festus, but speak forth the words of truth and soberness. For the king knoweth of these things, before whom also I speak freely. For I am persuaded that none of these things are hidden from him, for this thing was not done in a corner. King Agrippa, believest thou the prophets? I know that thou believest. Then Agrippa said unto Paul, Almost thou persuadest me to be a Christian. And Paul said, I would to God that not only thou, but also all that hear me this day were both almost and altogether such as I am, except these bonds. And when he had thus spoken, the king rose up and the governor and Bernice and they that sat with them. And when they had gone aside, they talked between themselves, saying, This man doeth nothing worthy of death or of bonds. Then said Agrippa unto Festus, This man might have been set at liberty, 
if he had not appealed unto Caesar. Let's pray. Lord, help us to see some things from this text today. And Lord, I, I can't exhaust it, of course. But Father, I think this could be a really special time for us today. Please speak to us through your word. In Jesus' name, amen. You can be seated. Isn't that an amazing account? A couple of things have happened. Again, the Apostle Paul had been arrested. They were going to beat him. He appealed as a Roman citizen. How can you strike? How can you judge a Roman citizen? And he made his appeal to Caesar. But before he could get to Caesar, he had to go through these different steps. Festus is the procurator. That's He's the governor. And then uh, King Agrippa is Herod Agrippa II, and he was over a certain region. So he was a Roman king. And it's interesting. Hold your place here, but go to Acts chapter 9. I want you to see something. This is the actual account of the Apostle Paul's conversion. Oh, let me say this. Paul's conversion account, the event of his salvation, is given three times in the Bible. Now, you know that when God repeats something three times, that's the highest emphasis that you can have in the Scriptures. Holy, holy, holy. And God gives this account three times. So the conversion of the Apostle Paul is something that we ought to study. It's something that's really important to us. So this is the initial account. This is the historical event. And so God had, had saved Paul, and he was Saul at that time, and he sent him to this guy Ananias. But Ananias didn't want to see him. You know, this would be like having Osama bin Laden come to your house. Would you be happy to see that? That's exactly, understand, that's the kind of fanaticism that Paul was engaged in. The same thing. Are you all with me on this? The same thing. And so God wanted Ananias to help him. And look at verse 13. Then Ananias answered, Lord, I have heard many, I have heard by many of this man how much evil he hath done to thy saints at Jerusalem. And here he hath authority from the chief priest to bind all that call on thy name. But the Lord said unto him, Go thy way, for he is a chosen vessel unto me to bear my name before the Gentiles and kings and the children of Israel. So now he's standing before a king. See, he had preached to Gentiles, he had preached to the Jews, and now he's going to preach to a king. It's fascinating. I think that first happened in Acts chapter 24. But God said this was going to happen, and now it is happening. You know what would be cool? It'd be cool to be an Ananias. See, here's the deal. I can't be Paul. I, you know, I'll quote Spurgeon here in a minute. And I, I, would, I would like to be a Charles Spurgeon. Charles Spurgeon could, in one sitting, read three or four entire books in one afternoon and then quote entire chapters from memory. He wrote a book every three months. He wrote three to 500 letters a week. He had the largest church in England. He had the, one of the largest orphanages around. He had this amazing co-porterage uh, uh, ministry getting books to preach. I can't be Spurgeon. I can't do that. But I can be an Ananias. I can be the one that when somebody gets saved, I start teaching them the foundational principles of the Word of God. You see, I might not be able to be the Apostle Paul, but I can be a witness. I can be a witness. And we're going to talk about what that means here in a minute. So go back to Acts chapter 26. Remember, so remember the title of our sermon is Why Witness? But if you look at the screen, remember from last week, none of us lives unto ourselves. Whether we live or whether we die, we die unto the Lord. We don't live unto ourselves or die unto ourselves. We live or we die unto the Lord. So why be a witness? Notice Paul's demeanor in Acts 26. Look at verse 1. Then Agrippa said unto him, Thou art permitted to speak. Look at verse 2. I think myself happy, King Agrippa. Now, how many of you would be happy at that moment? What was he happy about? He was happy that he had a chance to testify about what God had done for him in front of a king and in front of the king's court. That's awesome. And I love it that God has raised up people to do that. 
You know that I've got some differences with John MacArthur. I'm not a Calvinist, some things like that. But every time I see John MacArthur have the opportunity to speak in a public forum, I say, you go, John. (laughs) He is fantastic. God has raised people like him up to speak before kings. Isn't that awesome? Well, God hasn't given me the opportunity, but I can tell you. I can witness in the opportunities that I have. And I love Paul's demeanor. He said, I think myself happy. Verse 3 again. And look at what it says. Verse 2 again. I think myself happy, King Agrippa, because I shall answer for myself this day before thee, touching all the things whereof I am accused of the Jews. Especially because I know thee to be an expert in all customs and questions which are among the Jews. Wherefore, I beseech thee to hear me patiently. Notice he's not belligerent to the king. He's courteous to the king. Look at his demeanor. Here's what Spurgeon said. Paul is bold, but see how he is all things to all men. And he begins an address for his life with great adroitness and skill, teaching us that we are to use all the courtesies of life to those to whom they belong and never to cause needless irritation. There is enough offense in the cross of itself without our being offensive when uplifting it. Isn't that good? Here's what I have in my mind. Those that go to a fallen soldier's uh, funeral and hold up signs, God hates fags. You see, that is not biblical Christianity. That is not biblical witness. If they went and there was a, a procession going by and they held up a sign that says, Jesus saves, praise God, I'm all for that. Amen? But that other type of, of behavior, the, the cross is an offense enough. They don't need to change their minds about homosexuality until they get saved. You see, being homosexual never sent someone to hell. Not believing in the Lord Jesus Christ sends people to hell. People go to hell because they are unsaved, not because they commit adultery. People go to hell because they are unsaved, not because they tell a lie. See, it's foundational that we understand we don't fight the culture wars. We do not fight the culture wars, listen, from the perspective of the culture. The only way that we can truly influence the culture is by leading people to the Lord Jesus Christ and having an indwelling Holy Spirit in them. Should we be involved in politics? Absolutely we should be. But that can never be our primary goal. We're going to preach Christ. Secondly, notice Paul's past. So look at verse 4. My manner of life from my youth, which was at the first among mine own nation at Jerusalem, know all the Jews, which knew me from the beginning, if they would testify, that after the most straightest sect of the religion, I lived a Pharisee. So the Apostle Paul was not only a Jew, he was the strictest of the Jews. And not only was he a Pharisee, in another place he says, I was a Pharisee of the Pharisees. He was taught by the greatest Hebrew teacher alive at that time. And he was the greatest Hebrew scholar alive at the time. The Bible says not many noble, not many mighty, but Paul was one of the noble and one of the mighty. So when he said this, it's interesting. What Paul is doing is he's testifying for the Lord Jesus Christ, even though everyone knew his past. You see, there are a lot of us who say, I would serve God. I would serve God, but you don't know what I've done. I would serve God, but I know I have a bad reputation. Here's what you can do with that bad reputation. Change it. As bold as you were in doing things that are wrong, be bolder in doing things that are right. As bold as you were in bringing people away from Christ, that's what Paul did. Be even bolder in leading them to him. See, the, look at his testimony. Everybody knew who I was. And so he has authority to speak on these things. Notice Paul's past. Everyone knew him. And then notice Paul's method. Look at verse 6. And now I stand and am judged for the hope of the promise made of God unto our fathers. What is that hope? That's the hope of the resurrection. That's the hope of the resurrection. Notice what it says. Unto which promise our 12 tribes instantly serving God day and night. Hope to come. For which hope's sake, King Agrippa, I am accused of the Jews. 
See, here's how we know it's the resurrection. Why should it be thought a thing incredible to you that God should raise the dead? Now, listen, the Pharisees believed in the resurrection. I have this. He testifies what he believes, and that's the hope, the hope of the resurrection. In the book of Ezekiel, you know, that old spiritual, them bones, them bones, them dry bones, them bones, them bones, them. Tennessee Ernie Ford, right? Those, those bones, they're going to come to life. What that's talking about is the nation of Israel that was not a nation will be raised up. See, the Pharisees believed in the resurrection. The Sadducees did not believe in the resurrection. The Pharisees believed in the resurrection because they were Old Testament literalists. And so the Apostle Paul says, not only was I raised the way that you are, I still believe in the resurrection. Not only do I believe in the resurrection of the Jews, I believe in the resurrection of Jesus Christ. So his method, this is, this is so important for us to understand. We live in a Christian community, right? We don't live in a pagan community. If you went to Seattle, you would live in a pagan community. We don't live in a pagan community. We live in a quote-unquote Christian community. So when you're giving the gospel to somebody, you can just say this, I know that you believe the Bible. I know that you believe in the death, burial, and resurrection. I believe in that also. But I do not believe that adding anything to that will save me. It is only the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ that can save me. Do you see what he's doing? He is identifying with what they claim to believe, and then he holds them to account for it. Do you really believe this? That's Paul's method, and it's a brilliant way to do it. Uh, Boy, I I told Laura, I've got to keep this thing moving. I could preach from this text for about a month. I want to go off to how we could debate politically and how we can debate in apologetics and all of those things. We'll do that at another time. But he identifies what he believes with what they already claim to believe. So he then identifies what they claim to believe. This is interesting. He's then self-deprecating. It's Very interesting. So he has said, they all know me. They do. If they would testify to it, they know me. They know that I am righteous when it comes to the law. Secondly, as righteous as a man can be. Secondly, he identifies what they claim to believe, and he says that he believes it. So right there, he has built himself up. But look at the next thing that he does. Notice Paul's testimony, verse 9. I verily thought with myself that I ought to do many things contrary to, to the name of Jesus of Nazareth. What's he saying? I was just like you. I'm not any different than you. And then he describes it, which thing I also did in Jerusalem. And he goes on to talk about how zealous he really was. He would say to a Muslim, you think you're a Muslim? I am on jihad. You call yourself a Muslim. I'm killing all of them. That's what I've done. This is what Paul is saying. You call yourself a Pharisee. I was a Pharisee of the Pharisees. You say you're against this sect. I killed them. Wow. This is so important. I'm not going to take the time to establish this. Maybe we will sometime on our interpretive lessons. But Paul in the Bible is a picture of the believer. He is the perfect picture of the believer. Someone who thought they were right, someone who thought they were established biblically. They thought they were okay with God. And then Jesus Christ comes in and changes everything. You understand that's who we are. We're people that we thought we were okay. And then we met Jesus and it changed everything. He's a picture of the believer. He's not just a picture of the believer in general, but he's a picture of the believer in this particular age. What is that age? It's the, it's the age from the resurrection of Jesus Christ until the return of Jesus Christ. And that is that all of us are walking in a direction that is away from God. And then the light of Jesus Christ comes into our lives and we are faced with that light and we're faced with that light. What God wants us to do is turn from one way, which was not believing in Jesus, to turning to believing in God through his son, Jesus Christ. That's what God wants us to do. That's it. Paul was on his way to persecute God's people. 
And God intervened and changed the direction of Paul's life. That's what God wants to do for all of us. Amen? Would you all agree with that? Paul is a picture of the believer in this age. But notice Paul's commission. If you look at verse 16. So in verse 15, he asked the question, Who art thou, Lord? And he said, I am Jesus whom thou persecuted. But look at his commission. But rise and stand upon thy feet. Notice the first thing that Paul wants a believer to do. Stand. Stand. Did Paul, here, it's so important. Did Paul know everything about the Christian life yet? No. What does God want him to do? He wants him to stand. Anybody here, you know everything about the Christian life? No. What do you need to do? You need to stand. No. I understand that I've got some education that you guys don't have. So I have some understanding of this that you guys probably don't. Ty already knows where I'm going with this. Stand means don't sit. Paul was laying on the ground. Get up and do something. That's the message. You see, the first part of Paul's commission is to get up. The first part of our commission is go. Now, again, you probably don't know this because you don't have my education. You can't go and stay at the same time. Isn't that brilliant? See, God knows who we are. There's not this real high level of theological understanding that God imposes on the new believer. God tells the new believer, look, I've saved you. Now I want you to do something. And that first thing is get up, get prepared to do something. Now, here's the next thing, though. We can't do whatever we want. How many of you, when you first got saved, the first thing you went and did was made the rest of your family really mad? How many of you did that, right? It's so funny. God gives us the direction of what we're supposed to do. Here, we're looking at Paul's commission. Look at verse 16 again. But rise and stand upon thy feet, for I have appeared unto thee, look at this, for this purpose, to make thee a minister and a witness. So Paul has two jobs, to be a minister and a witness. So let's look at that for a second. So it, look at, let's keep reading in verse 16. But rise and stand upon thy feet, for I have appeared unto thee for this purpose, to make thee a minister and a witness, both of these things which thou hast seen, and of those things in the which I will appear unto thee. So the things which you have seen, that's from birth till then. And then secondly, those things in the which I will appear unto thee from then on. So here's what God is telling him. Look, I want you to be a, a minister and a witness. It's very interesting. And all that stuff that you've done in the past, I'm going to use that. But I'm not going to leave you there. I'm going to use everything that's happened in your past, good and bad, and I'm going to build you right from there. Do you know what God's going to do for you? God's going to take you and everything that has happened in your past, both good and bad, he is going to use that for you to be a minister and a witness for him. If you will stand, if you will go, why be a witness? Because everything in your life has prepared you to be a witness for him. Praise God. Then God uses it all. So a minister has to take care of people and meet their needs. It's interesting. God doesn't only call us to be teachers. He calls us to be ministers and teachers. Remember, no one cares what you know until they know what you care. Y'all have heard that before? No one cares what you know until they know that you care. So notice what he calls him. He calls him to be a minister first and a witness second. That's fascinating to me. How many of you, this is, so, I love this. This is so cool. Love this. How many of you think of Paul as a touchy-feely guy? Not a lot of touchy-feely mass murderers. Right? And yet, the first thing God calls him to do is to be a minister. And some of you say, I know I'm supposed to meet people's needs, but here's the problem. I feel like uh, Kip from Napoleon Dynamite. See, here's the thing. 
I don't really like people. That's what people say. I know I'm supposed to be a minister. I don't like people. God doesn't care. You are supposed to be a minister and then a witness. Okay, let's go on. A witness, so a minister meets their needs. A witness, this is so important, has to testify of the facts which he himself has observed or experienced firsthand. It's hard to testify of something that you haven't experienced. You know, if I hadn't gotten saved, it'd be very difficult for you to talk, for me to talk to you about what it means to be saved. I could describe it, but I couldn't testify to it. You see the difference? All right. So, a witness. So, Paul is called to do five things, and they're right here in our text. The first one, look at verse 18. To open their eyes. Do you see that? To open their eyes. Look with me. Keep your place in Acts. Go to 2 Corinthians chapter 4. 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 1. So one objection that someone might have in this message, well, this is Paul's commission, and I can't be Paul. What does this have to do with me? Well, First and Second Corinthians are written to all the believers, okay? They're written to the church at Corinth and, and to, everyone, to those called saints everywhere. That's what it says, okay? So look at Second Corinthians chapter 4, verse 1. Therefore, seeing, what's that next word? We have this, what's that? Ministry, as we have received mercy. Have any of you here received mercy? We faint not, but have renounced the hidden things of dishonesty, not walking in craftiness, nor handling the word of God deceitfully. See, there's the witness part. Do you see that? Nor handling the word of God deceitfully, but by manifestation of the truth, commending ourselves to every man's conscience in the sight of God. But if our gospel be hid, it is hid to them that are lost, in whom the God of this world hath blinded the minds of them which believe not, lest the light of the glorious gospel of Christ, who is the image of God, should shine unto them. All right, so first thing we need to do is to open their eyes. Why? Because they're blinded by Satan. We need to open their eyes because they're blinded by Satan. One of the most important things that you need to understand is most people think they're okay. The the hardest thing about getting someone saved is getting them lost. They're blinded to their own need for salvation. Now, you keep your place here in 2 Corinthians. But the next thing is in, in Acts 26, to turn them from darkness to light. To turn them from darkness to light. Look back there at 2 Corinthians 4. Verse 4 again, in whom the God of this world hath blinded the minds of them which believe not, lest the light of the glorious gospel of Christ, who is the image of God, should shine unto them. People do not understand that they are in darkness. It's interesting. How many of you remember the first time you saw HDTV? You might not remember the actual minute, but I can tell you this. It was a lot different than what you had. Sometimes when I travel, I'll go to a hotel, and I'll turn on the TV, and they've got this beautiful flat-screen TV. And I turn it on, and I go, it's not in HD. <laughs> and you know what the problem with it not being HD? It's all distorted. It's terrible. How many of you are with me on this? You know what I'm talking about? I can't stand it. Now, here's the problem. I think this is hilarious. I was fine with TV before I found HD. Why? I didn't know what I was missing. I didn't have any idea what I was missing. I thought life was good before I got married. I didn't know what I was missing. Life is so much better now with Laura than it was before Laura. So that's BL and AL. That's, that's my life. Here's the problem with people. There's one more. Life before graders and life after graders. You know what I'm talking about there? I had had ice cream, but I never really had ice cream until I had graders. Here's the problem. People are fine with where they are. They don't understand they're in darkness. Then the light comes on. That light of Jesus Christ. And it changes everything. See, Paul's commission, Paul's commission 
was to turn them from darkness to light. That's our job. So go back to Acts 26. Verse verse 18 again. To open their eyes and to turn them from darkness to light and from the power of God. I'm sorry. And from the power of Satan unto God. People don't understand this. And we've looked at this before in Ephesians chapter 2. That here's where people are. They're walking according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air. People are living for Satan even though they don't understand it. They don't have to have a pentagram, uh, you know, tattooed to their forehead to be living for Satan. Here's the simple fact of the matter. You're either living for Satan or you're living for God. Either the God of this world or the one true God. You're serving one or the other. And people are taken captive by him at his will. Look at the way mankind is described. If you look at the, your, the screen, they're without hope, without strength, without excuse, and without God. That's how mankind is described in those passages. Without hope, without strength, without excuse, and without God. Does that sound good? But it's not done. They are in an evil world with an evil imagination. But that's not all. They have been taken captive by the devil, according to 2 Timothy 2.26, at his will. See, we're supposed to live according to God's will, but if we're not living according to God's will, we're living according to Satan's will. And here's what we think. We're li- we think we're living according to our will. No, no, you're not. You're not. You are a slave, the Bible says. You are in chains. You are bound to this world and to the will of Satan. And what does Jesus Christ want to do? He wants to set you free. And if you're free... You shall be free indeed, the Bible says. See, that's our message. Our message is to turn them from the power of Satan to the power of God. How or why? So that they can receive forgiveness of sins. Do you see that in verse 20, in verse 18? And that they may, so that they may receive the forgiveness of sins. This is so important. Don't miss this. I've got it up here on the screen for you. This forgiveness is not in water baptism. It is not in the sacraments. Look at Hebrews 10. Let's just look at that real quick. These Jewish believers, and that's who Hebrews is written to, these Jewish believers, boy, they were good at sacraments. Verse 1, For the law, having a shadow of good things to come, and not the very image of the things, can never with those sacrifices which they offered year by year continually make the comers thereunto perfect. For then would they not have ceased to be offered? Because that the worshipers once purged should have had no more conscience of sins. But in those sacrifices there is a remembrance made, a a remembrance Again, made of sins every year. There are people that take communion every week. They take communion every... Some people take communion every day. Thinking that that is going to take away their sin. No. The only thing to take away your sin is the blood of Jesus. See, our message is to tell people that they can have forgiveness of sins. Can I tell you something? I'm forgiven. Not I will be forgiven. I am forgiven. I am forgiven of everything I've ever done and everything I ever will done. That's the wonderful thing about God. He knows all that. And yet, I am forgiven. I am in Christ, and in Christ I am clean and sinless. In my flesh, I am sinful. I sin every day. But before Christ, before the throne, I am absolutely perfect through the blood of Jesus Christ. That's what it means to have forgiveness of sins. That's what I have. That's what you have if you're saved. And if you're not saved, that's what you can have. That's our message. That's Paul's commission. Not only that, this forgiveness of sins is not in confessing sin. Judas, Balaam, and Pharaoh all confessed their sins, but not to repentance. They all understood that they'd made a mistake, but they never trusted in Christ or in the message that they had been given. It's not by believing that a cup of wine is Christ's blood. That doesn't save anybody. Only the blood of Jesus Christ. And I like this. The Bible says he tasted death once for every man. That sacrifice does not need to be made continually. He tasted death one time 
and purged our sins. And it's certainly not by living a better life. You can't live a good enough life to get forgiveness of sins. That doesn't do it. It is by faith. So look at verse 18. Go back to uh, Acts 26. Verse 18, to open their eyes and to turn them from darkness to light and from the power of Satan unto God, that they may receive forgiveness of sins, and look at this, and inheritance among them which are sanctified, what's it say? By faith. That is in me. Not faith in him, by the same faith that Paul had. What's that? Faith in Jesus Christ. This forgiveness follows redemption, and redemption is only through his blood. Colossians 1.14 says that, that we have redemption through his blood, even the remission of sins. Our sin is washed away by the blood of Jesus Christ, not by anything I do, not by baptism, not by sacraments, not by good works, not by good living, not by any priest, not by any pastor. It doesn't matter if you're Baptist, Catholic, Presbyterian, nothing. It doesn't matter. The only salvation that you can have is through the blood of Jesus Christ. That's our message. We can give them forgiveness of sins. And then to give them an inheritance. Man, I love this. An inheritance. See, here's the problem with the world. They don't know what they, not what they can have, what they already have. See, the Bible says in Romans chapter 8 that we are heirs and joint heirs with Jesus Christ. What does Jesus have? Everything. Everything. I'm a joint heir of everything. Here, I put this. I had to get something political in here. They don't need socialism. They need Christ. See, there's this really popular message. We're going to help people by giving them everything. But you can only give somebody everything by taking it from someone else. Here's the good news. Jesus owns everything. Isn't that awesome? See, this idea of socialism, it is that if somebody has too much, we have to take it from them and give to everyone else. Here's the, there's not enough stuff for that. It doesn't work, but it's very appealing to people. They don't need that. They need Jesus Christ. And isn't it interesting that the first thing that Marx had to do was get rid of Jesus for his system to work? If you're satisfied in Christ, then you don't need to be satisfied in things. If you're, if you're satisfied in Christ, then you don't have to be envious of what someone else has. If you're not envious of what someone else has, Marxism does not work. Fantastic. Number six, notice Paul's response to his call. Look at verse 19. Whereunto, O King Agrippa, I was not disobedient unto the heavenly vision. Paul said, I got this commission, and let me tell you something. I didn't ignore it. I've been faithful. I've done it. Can I ask you a question? Has God called you to do something? Has God commanded you to go? Has God commanded you to stand? Has God commanded you to testify? Has God commanded you to be a witness? Has God commanded you to forgive? Has God, for, has God commanded you to open other people's eyes? Can, can you give this same answer? What does it say? I was not disobedient unto the heavenly vision. Let me tell you, I've not been as faithful as I should be. But by God's help, I will be. Amen? Why be a witness? Because we have this amazing commission and the amazing power of the Holy Spirit. Then, number seven, notice Paul's message, verse 20. He goes and shows them that they should turn, middle of verse 12, that they should repent and turn to God and do works meet for repentance. What's, what's the message? Verse 23, that Christ should suffer and that he should be the first that should rise from the dead and should show light unto the people and to the Gentiles. What's Paul's message? It's the gospel. Repent. Repent. What are works that are meet for righteousness? What are those works? You obey the gospel. What does it mean to obey the gospel? To realize that your works can't save you. Not by works of righteousness, which we have done, but by his mercy, he saved us. For by grace are you saved through faith, and that not of yourselves. It is the gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. Turn from what you're doing and do what Christ wants you to do, and that's believe the gospel. Paul's message. What I love is he's telling, as, as he's saying what he's been doing to the king, he preaches the gospel. I love that. Then, notice Paul's accuser's response, verse 24. And as he thus spake for himself, Festus said with a loud voice, notice he didn't just say, I have an objection. He started yelling. While Paul's testifying, this governor, he loses all of his self-respect and just melts down. Oh, and I got to say this. This is so true. Whatever they accuse us of, they're doing. 
Have you ever noticed that? Okay, here we go. As he thus spake for himself, Festus said with a loud voice, Paul, thou art beside thyself. Much learning doth make thee mad. You're crazy. This is what happens when you're testifying for Jesus Christ in the authority of God's word, in the right spirit, the only thing they can say to you is, you're crazy. They can't debate our arguments. They can't debate our truth. They can't debate our foundational logic. They can't debate the reality of what Christ has done for us. So the only thing that they can fall back on is, you're nuts. Remember, that's what they said to Jesus. They came and tried to lay hold on him. His family did. They were going to lay hold on him. For they said, he is beside himself. Jesus' own family thought he was nuts. And here's what's going to happen. When you start serving God, your family's going to think you're crazy. That's okay. They thought Jesus was crazy. If you're going to be like Christ, if your family doesn't think you're nuts, then you're not being like Jesus. Number nine, notice Paul's direct statement to the king. Man, there's so much more I could say, but drop this down, drop down here. So look at verse 25. But he said, I am not mad, most noble Festus. He was. Remember what it says in verse verse 11? He said, and I punished them oft in every synagogue and compelled them to blaspheme and being exceedingly mad. Yeah, Festus, when I was like you, I was crazy. When I was like you, I was mad, but I'm not mad now. I have Jesus. But he said, I am not mad, most noble Festus, but speak forth the words of truth and soberness. So I'm in self-control. But the king knoweth of these things, before whom also I speak freely. For I am persuaded that none of these things are hidden from him. For this thing was not done in a corner. I love this right here. You know. And this is one of the best things that you can do when you're debating with somebody. Because they know what the truth is. They, even if they're rejecting it. You know, like the statement, there are no atheists in foxholes. They know what the truth is. And that's exactly what the Apostle Paul is saying. You know. You know this is true. This thing was not done in a corner. Within 10 years, Herod's going to be lighting his garden with Christians by burning them at the stake. The, the Roman government knows about the Christians. And the, when Paul says to him that you know what the prophets say, he says it in a minute. You know the prophets and you believe the prophets. When Agrippa II was 17, his father died, and so he was raised in the court of Claudius Caesar. And there in the court of Claudius, when there was an uprising between the Samaritans and the Jews, he defended the Jews against the Samaritans to Claudius. He was a, he was a learner and a follower of the Jewish religion. Whether or not he believed it, I don't know, but he was very much educated in it. And I love it that Paul says, you know this. You know this is true. And I love it. When you show somebody the word of God... You read it, and here's what you say. You know this is right. Well, I, I, no. You know. You might not admit it to yourself. You might not admit it to me. You know. How do I know that? Because the Holy Spirit of God is knocking on their heart, confirming what the Bible says to them. You know the truth. Why witness? We have the truth. They actually know the truth. We just need to get their eyes open to turn them from blindness to sight, to turn them from darkness to light. He says, you know, then notice the sad response of the king verse. You know, what? let's let's finish reading that verse 26 for the king knoweth of these things before whom also I speak freely. For I am persuaded that none of these things are hidden from him for this thing was not done in a corner. Let me tell you something. People know this building has been built. People know something's happening at Grace Baptist Church. Not done in a corner. Well, our building was kind of built in a corner. But King Agrippa, believest thou the prophets? He asked the question, I know that thou believest. Sad response. Then Agrippa said unto Paul, Almost thou persuadest me to be a Christian. Almost. One of the saddest words in the Bible. You see, almost is lost. Almost is lost. One of the commentators I was reading had been a, in the military in World War II. He was in the Philippines. And he had a friend who was a master sergeant who took a first lieutenant. And they had had a battle. And they wanted to go back to the scene of the battle 
to get some souvenirs. It had been a battle with the Japanese. And so they got there, and they, they found this Japanese para-bomb, so a bomb that would come down in a parachute, and he wanted to take that with him. And so the sergeant said, man, you need to be careful with that. But the lieutenant was a lieutenant of engineers, and that was his, his business, was bomb disposal. So he thought he was okay. He starts messing with the fuse. The bomb exploded. Guy picks him up, and the sergeant picks him up and t- runs him to the jeep, and both of his hands were blown off. He said that his chest and stomach looked like somebody poured ketchup all over him. And so he's driving 50 miles an hour back to the base, back to the hospital, 50 miles an hour in this old jeep on roads that are made for ox carts. And he rushes them there. He starts honking the horn. They can hear this horn a mile away. So by the time he gets to the hospital, the doctors and the nurses are there waiting for him. They got him there, and they, they immediately start care, and they, they're putting tourniquets on his wrists. And right as they're carrying him through the door, they're, they're already... They're already doing everything they can to save his life. He's made it to the hospital. He's made it through the door of the hospital. He's being treated. And he almost lived. There are so many people that make it, say, into the church building that hear the preaching of the word of God over and over and over again. They hear the message of the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ over and over and over again. They hear the message of what it means to turn from darkness to light. They hear what the forgiveness of sins really is. They're so close. They're almost there. Someone said that the confessional statement of hell is almost thou has persuaded me. You see, salvation is by grace alone, through faith alone. The the devils, the Bible says, believe in God. Your belief in God, your belief in the death, burial, and resurrection does not save you. Your belief that it was for you and your asking for Christ to save you, to apply it to your account, that is what saves you. It's when you say, yes, I've known this for a long time, but now I'm asking you to save me. Please save me. What? For the mo- with the mouth, confession is made to salvation. Have you done that? See, this is Paul's message. And the saddest response of Agrippa was almost. Why witness? Because we've got a lot of friends and loved ones who are almost persuaded. We know a lot of people who are almost there. There might be people in this room. You're almost there. Why witness? Because we have a command of God to stand and go. We have the Holy Spirit of God, the power of God, the Word of God, the message of God. He has given us everything that we need. We just need to do it. Amen? Why witness? Because God has told us to. Let's all stand together. Lord, we need you so desperately. There's so many more things that could be said about all of the things that happen in this account.